This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Welcome to UC Santa Barbara's Innovator Story Series. I'm John Greathouse. You can follow me on Twitter at John Greathouse. Tonight we have Catherine Zinn with us. And when I was preparing for this interview, I literally was thinking maybe I would get three chairs for Catherine and have her move between the chairs as we talked about her different roles. She has three very substantial uh, professional roles. One, she is the client, chief client officer at Baker Botts, which is a um, nearly a billion dollar global um, law firm, one of the biggest in the world. She's also the board advisor to a number of early stage tech companies as well as, 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 well as the executive coach to a number of CEOs. And lastly, but um, certainly not lastly when it comes to her time commitment, she has, she has become very involved in her community. She is a community leader serving on a, as a political fundraiser and as a board member for nine different charitable organizations. And several of those, she's actually a leader, not just sitting on the board, she's a leader on the board helping make things happen. So if any of you have, have a parent that's been involved in any kind of a charitable organization, even just one, you know what it's like. You can imagine what it's like to be on eight or nine um, organizations. She's been recognized for the number of awards. I'm just going to list a few really quickly to give you a feel for um, the amount of recognition she's received. She was named Silicon Valley Top 100 Women of Influence. She was recognized by the National uh, Women of Achievement. She was recognized as the Top 100 Women in Law, as well as the Top 50 Women Executives in the Bay Area. She's also had various um, appointments by, by former President Obama, as well as the former Secretary of Health and Human Services. Really excited to have Catherine come and, and take time out of her busy you know, three jobs that she's, that she's running, because she's a great example of someone with a, with a significant entrepreneurial spirit. You're going to see her entrepreneurial spirit up here, but she's channeled it within a larger organization as an entrepreneur. So she's been able to go into an organization with, with its own constraints and its own way of doing things and inject that entrepreneurial uh, vigor into that organization while at the same time um, coaching CEOs, helping underrepresented folks get funding from VC firms. So let's welcome her to our class. Good to see you. Thank you. I'm just humbled that you took the time to come down here for Silicon Valley. I know how busy you are, so we'll use your time as wisely as we can. So thank you. Thank you. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Actually, the humility goes the other way. This is a big deal for me to be here um, with you, and um, I appreciate the opportunity. Well, let's go back in time. So I like to, sometimes I like to start with, you know, not just when you were sitting in the seats, like these folks are here at the end of your college career, but what about fourth grade? Catherine in fourth grade, if I had, if she was sitting in, one, in this chair here and I said, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would she have said? So first, um, Catherine in fourth grade, you would find her in uh, Berkeley, California. And this won't mean anything to most of you, but I was wearing these dolphin shorts and an Izod, <laughs> thank you, yes. um, uh, collar shirt, sometimes a members only, and these Sperry topsiders. And I thought I looked great. I had bangs straight you were across. Like super pretty. Um, yep, 
Yeah, indeed. And, um, you know, I'm so glad that you asked about fourth grade because that is, I, I hit my um, stride and peak early. That was probably the best, most successful <laughs> year of my life. Seriously. I was, uh, so I'm five foot three, by the way. I was the tallest, fastest, strongest kid in the class. Wow. I was like always picked first for kickball. And then academically, things were, you know, going swimmingly. And, um, you know, I just really thought I was top of the game. I was in theater. I got the lead. But then, you know, after that, it was you know, kind of downhill. But if you had asked... Sorry, I touched the nerve. No, 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 a good one. Because it got me all kind of hyped up um, and in a good headspace to say that if you asked me, you know, what do you want to be, you know, when you grow up, I, 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 I would not have had, you know, an answer, a lawyer, a doctor, a teacher. I would have said... And forgive me if this sounds, I'm a little self-conscious about this. It sounds a little self-aggrandizing. I would have said I want to run something someday. I don't think that's self-aggrandizing at all. That's wonderful. Well, well you're well on the way of getting there. Well, right? you're, you're already running things, and um, you're a significant player here as well. So, I think, so far, so good. I think you would have pleased the fourth grade, Catherine. Yeah, yeah. Well, good for you. So what, in your role as chief client officer, so I know that's a term that's sort of emerging. It's kind of a newer term, um, something I wasn't familiar with until I really read a little bit about it. So if you could just maybe expound upon what, what your job entails and if you could list three things that, that you're focused on the most in that role. Sure. So um, first I'll just say, with all due respect to the industry, it's a trillion-dollar industry, the legal industry. It is way behind the times. Law firms generally do not operate like the rest of businesses, so we're all trying to catch up. That's just what we're. What, that's just a reality. Mm-hmm. So um, the role I have, chief client officer, if I were in a let's say more traditional corporation that you might be more familiar with, my role would be a blend of the uh, probably chief operating officer, chief marketing officer, probably some chief revenue officer. You've probably yep. had some of those people yep. in the seat before. Yep, so that would be more um, capture kind of the, the nature of the of the role. So I have a very large um, global team that I lead, which again is the greatest privilege that one can have, um, also very uh, humbling, particularly in these times. Yep. Um, in the three areas, if you force me to pick three, except for I'm going to cheat, um, would be the focus first and foremost on our clients and are they happy. The next one would be on talent, and that's a very broad uh, generalization, and I'm going to slip in culture. So talent right now is precious and we want to um, attract top talent, we want to retain top talent, we want to develop top talent, and we want to do that in a culture where everybody feels they can bring their authentic selves to, the, to, to work. And um, I would say, last but not least, certainly, is growth, which, of course, relates to the first one. You want mm-hmm. happy clients. They're more likely to give you more business. Right. But we also need um, new ones. We operate in a highly competitive environment. I actually looked this up because I thought, you know, what if someone asks? There are 400,000 law firms. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that explains in part the trillion-dollar industry in, in the U.S. Um, but I wanted to layer in two things that any organization needs to think about. It would be certainly innovation needs to be in everything that you do all the time. So that's sort of the overlay, right, of any of those functions that yep. you might oversee. And perhaps the most important um, right now, forever and always, would be diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and just a brief thought on that. 
I think a big change that I've observed, and I'm curious if you've observed the same, would be um, you often hear the term DNI or diversity and inclusion is mm-hmm. how it's referred to in a lot of organizations. Mm-hmm. It used to sit off to the side. That and of the visual of that in and of itself feels so wrong to yep. me. Yep. Inclusion. So really, the way I, the reason I mention it in partnership or at the same time is innovation. That diversity, equity, and inclusion needs to run across all the functional areas of a company. So it's interesting you said that. I'm involved in a group here in Santa Barbara. We're trying to we're trying to make Santa Barbara more inclusive and diverse. We've got a long way to go. Um, and one of the things I learned from that group was that. To your point, when when a company would raise its hand and say, "Hey, we you know we want to make diversity and inclusion a, a focus," and so we're going to hire somebody who's focused on that. that. So that's a good start. Yes. But then what would often happen, um, and I'm just speaking anecdotally from the folks I've spoken to, is that person would usually get slotted in an HR. Mm-hmm. Kind of, it seems to make sense on the surface, but then when you think about it, what does that message send to your employees? So if I'm the CEO and I stand up and I say, you know, this is one of the most important things we're going to do in 2022, and I want all of you to help me do it, and then the person I hire gets slotted like a couple rungs down in HR. It's still, it's not, it's better than not having anyone, obviously. So there's a company in town, I won't name them, although I don't think they would mind, they're a public company, and they did something a little differently. They brought in um, a diversity and inclusion officer, uh, and they report directly to the CEO. And the idea was when we sit down at executive staff meetings, and that's when you have all the senior people sitting there together with the CEO, we want diversity and inclusion to be at the same level as revenue or or product quality. And it's hard for it to be at that level when that person is sitting down the hall and their boss is in the meeting and he or she may or may not bring it up. So I just that's a small thing, and that's not a panacea, and, and it's not going to solve all, all the problems. But to me, that was really um, an important insight to see that you know that's putting your money where your mouth is, and not just saying you think it's important, but showing the rest of the company how important you think it is by elevating that position. Couldn't agree more. And I would say if you were to do a little quick little scan of the, uh, just take the largest top um, 500 um, public companies, the S&P 500, which you'll often hear referred to in in the news. I would say if they didn't have a chief diversity officer two years ago, they have one now. Mm -hmm. And again, it's a great start. It's a good start. um, As long as we recognize that's all it is. So something else with diversity inclusion that that I've seen is, you know, these things are evolutionary. for better or for worse. So oftentimes a company will start to pat itself on the back when they see numbers that just that, that indicate they're starting to become more diverse. Um, but then when you dig, and there's nothing again wrong with that, but then when you dig into those numbers, what you often find is it's a bunch of people that look like me at the top, and then, yes, they do have some other people that are, that are from traditionally underrepresented communities. So, so, so it's, it's, they're necessarily, their voice isn't necessarily being heard at those companies, even though they're at those companies. Have you seen any particular techniques, or have you been involved in anything to elevate the voices and not just have a numbers game where you look at how many people are in different slots? So I think one of the most significant things that's happening with respect to diversity and inclusion in a really positive way is when you think about um, who really does run a company and who oversees, including evaluates the performance of the CEO, among other things, Mm -hmm. that's the board of directors. 
So if they have that much power, let's look and see who's sitting around the table. Mm -hmm. Now, historically, that group of people tended to be white men, and that is changing dramatically. It's changing, as you know, some way in some ways by mandate, by law. Mm -hmm. um, it needs to. Certain companies, in order to be incorporated, have to have X number of diverse people on the boards. However, the more companies are doing it because they know and they see that to have diverse people around the table that the company, in fact, performs better. So to me, I think that's probably one of, if you, if you force me to pick one thing that is having the greatest positive impact, it would be that. Mm -hmm. Well, we've seen data on this from the startup world. I'm sure there's data for the boardroom world. I don't, I'm not familiar with it. But we've seen data from the startup world that indicates that um, founders that are of both genders do better than founders that are just male and female founders um, have, have proven to be more reliable and, and a better bet than all-male founders as well. So we, we've seen that data. And if you think, well, people are just going to, you know, you'd hope they do the right thing, but if, even if they're, they, they're just going to follow the money, even if they follow the money, they should be able to. They should do what what I would consider the right thing by bringing in a group of diverse folks. Um, I have seen that in, at the board level. Certainly, California made a change a year or two ago. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's been longer than that with COVID, um, where we're seeing a lot more women on 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 boards, both private and public. A number of uh, very accomplished women I've worked with, I've seen them get some really nice board seats that may not have been available to them before. So we're, we're certainly moving in the right direction, but it never seems to go fast enough. You guys have to make it go faster. It's like, right? Yes. We're, yes, they will. So I'm a big fan of mentors. I, I tell the students, I've told the students in this class that when you... Um, when you're in college, if you can get a mentor that's a non-family member, family member mentors, I love them, but somebody that's not in your family be a little bit more objective. Um, then if you do that and get an internship, you really increase your chances of success. So tell me, did you have a mentor early on, or do you have a mentee that, you, that you'd want to talk about? Yeah, so I um, have so many uh, mentors, you might actually think there's something wrong with me. But seriously, <laughs> asking for help is probably one of the uh, most powerful things you can do. Um, to advance um, your goals. So the, the thing I like to reflect on with respect to uh, mentors is, um, if you pull back, John, for a second, and let's think about, all, by the way, we have, I now know, all of these CEOs and future CEOs in the room. When you look at the three common characteristics of the most successful CEOs, you will find that many of them mentor others. And so I think it's, a, it's, it's yes, I mean, it's, it's normal and natural for us to think about ourselves mm -hmm. and finding the right um, mentor. But I think what's um, even better, and as a mentor, I have the privilege to be um, serve in that capacity, I always feel I get more out of uh, the relationship, mm -hmm. I feel, than the mentee. I do want to share one thought that's worked really well for me in, these, uh, in that relationship. By the way, both parties need to opt into it yes. and re-opt into it, right, and make sure it's still working for you and, and for both people. But one thing I really appreciate is if I do have the privilege of mentoring somebody, that they come to me with, I'd like help with something, here's what I'm working on, here's a goal, and they come sort of prepared asking for feedback on things as opposed to, it's not that I don't want to do the work, I just, just to kind of help make best use of our time, um, and I yep. try to do the So same. I think you're being polite, I'll be a minute more direct. <laughs> so you need to make it easy for the person to help you. And so sometimes it's referred to as an ask. It's like, what is your ask? And we're, I'll speak just for the two of us up here, 
we're, we want to help younger people, but if we don't really know what you want or what you need help with, it's, we're not detectives. Like, it's hard for us to play 20 questions with you and try to figure it out. So don't be, don't be shy. Don't be embarrassed to reach out to someone and say, hey, John, you know, I see that you, you have a connection with this person. Would you, do you mind making an introduction for me? Or, hey, Catherine, I see you're involved with you know, Shattered Fund. Is, here's my idea. Are you comfortable maybe um, inter, you know, introducing my idea within the fund? Just be specific about what, what you want. We would much rather get that kind of an email than an eight-paragraph, like, what do they ask? What do they want? They seem nice, but I, but I don't know what they need. So, so be, be very direct. So you mentioned this is also something I've noticed that younger people don't always, just wouldn't know at their age. And that's that the, younger, the older person, the mentor, often gets as much out of it as the mentee. And, so, and I know that that's certainly true for me. Do you, I don't know if you have any specific examples of that, or I can give one for me would be um, when I work with young people, um, I mean, my children are still relatively young, so I'm somewhat up on, on trends and things that are happening. But I, I get that out of my relationships with young people when I'm talking to them. Even technologies that you'll take for granted. Um, think about TikTok when it was new years ago. Like, you know, just being, uh, being exposed to that at an early stage for an older person is, is worthwhile. It's gratifying. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've had similar experiences. I mean, truly in every experience, um, I uh, have learned. I would say right now what's top of mind is, um, you know, just my meeting people who have a different um, learned experience than, than I do. So I'm a white woman. I'm straight. I, my mom was a dean at UC Berkeley. My dad was a lawyer. I'm an athlete. That, okay, so there's some other identifiers you could give. Uh, by the way, it doesn't make me a bad person. It just is what it is. And so my experience of getting to know somebody else who has a very different background, maybe is from a, another country, and um, it just has had this um, richness that helps me literally go into the next meeting and that I'm in now, mm. I'm back in my job, mm-hmm. if you will, yep. and listen differently. Mm. Sit back, ask more questions. So, right. I mean, the ways in which I've been made uh, better, broader, is um, endless. But that's because you have your eyes and ears open and you're self-aware. Right. I mean, if you have that mindset, then you can learn from pretty much everyone you interact with. No question. Yep. So I have a question that um, it actually kind of it overlaps what Logan Rhodes has. And I, so I'm going to let Logan ask the question. Hi, so... Um, Go ahead and pass it down. <laughs> Hi, so I see that you worked as a head coach for a Washington, D.C. high school team, top-rated. Um, as a tennis player myself, I thought that was really interesting. And did you learn anything on the court that you applied to the business realm? So thank you so much for the question, and I really enjoyed meeting you earlier. Um, so uh, I wanted to, when, when you told me the question before, I actually wanted to kind of lie to you guys, and I was going to make something up. Instead, I'm going to tell you the truth. I was not a great tennis player. So actually, I did play in college, and I was a coach, and I coached at Georgetown and blah, blah, blah. But truthfully, um, I was a head case. I would overthink mm-hmm. everything. And so, so to your question, which I absolutely love, 
I thought, all right. I mean, really, I lost to all kinds of people that I was better than. Well, apparently not, because I lost. But anyway, um, on, on paper. But, but what do I take away from that was, um, and to stay with the analogy of tennis, like either, and this goes to mindset, either you're about to hit the ball and that ball's going in the net, you know, you've just like, it's going in the net. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, unforced error again. Or you can be like, why wouldn't it go over the net and in and, and what have you? So mindset for me mm-hmm. um, and learning from that has been so powerful to say, I don't need to repeat that again. And I try to catch myself when I'm um, overthinking things. And I would say um, with athletics, one thing that I've seen <clears throat> is it's one thing to have talent, but it's another thing to put that talent to work. And then you just coupled it with and used the mental acuity, right? To, to you can be super. I mean, look at Kobe. He was in the gym at the, the first of the, the first to be in the gym and the last to be in the gym. Even though he might have arguably arguably been the most talented as well. So it's it's that combination. You'll see this in, in the business world too. You'll see people that you know they're talented. You know they're very good at what they do. They don't apply themselves or they make unforced errors, and you just cringe. You, you, you try to coach them. You try to help them, but at some point they they got to help themselves. Yes. Yeah. I know you're thinking of somebody <laughs> I'm still, specific. I mean, I'm no, thinking of somebody I'm thinking of, I get an email from today, and yeah. I'm like, really? Like, why would you write that? Um, I have another, we have another student's question. Uh, Kyla? Hi. I was wondering what the most important part of client satisfaction is to you, and what do you focus on to ensure that the customer's experience is unforgettable? So um, welcome to the world of being a CEO because that is the number one question you need to ask yourself every single day. So when you're running a company or, or you're, you're way ahead of the game by just the virtue of the fact that you came up with that question. So I want to introduce or reintroduce everybody to um, a well-known measure that we use in business, and it's called the Net Promoter Score. And if you're um, interested, I would suggest that you Google it, and up will come a Harvard Business Law, a Harvard Business Review article written some time ago, and it still stands. Everybody agrees that um, the most important thing you can do to, um, with respect to client satisfaction or customer service, is ask, "How am I doing?" and then be ready. To respond, because there's nothing worse than asking and then doing nothing about it, right? I think we've all had those um, failed customer service experiences. So, uh, a little bit about the Net Promoter Score and in uh, my business. So, I oversee the top clients of the firm, and I want to make sure they're all happy. So what does this look like? So I'm going to, again, stay with you as uh, the CEO, or we call them general counsel or chief legal officer. This person sits in the C-suite. So that would be the client I'm interacting with regularly. And I would ask her, so when you think of, on a scale from 1 to 10, how likely, 10 being absolutely certain, how likely are you to refer Baker Botts to a similarly situated peer. Risa, right, is there. Yes. So how likely are you to refer our law firm to Risa? And what the research shows, and by the way, it's a long article, you should read the whole thing, and, and so, but my summary is that anything less than a nine or a ten, that relationship is in jeopardy and it's a and it's vulnerable, and there's something to explore. So there's so much more that we could say about that, but I'll um, leave it there and appreciate the question. 
And we're going to talk a little bit about interviewing in a, in a moment, but that's also a good interview question. If you're if you're sitting across from an employer that you're really interested in and you and you genuinely care about their NPS, um, that's a good that's a good question. And and you'll get a, a sense for how important do they think it is. Oftentimes, by the way, they answer the question. I can't believe I'm going to do this, Professor Greathouse. Can I call you Professor Greathouse? No. <laughs> okay, John. So John just did something that I try not to do. Uh-oh. I work with lots of people in lots of industries, but particularly tech and energy. Those are the two sectors that we focus on. And he just used an acronym. I don't know if you heard. He said NPS. By the way, that's a universally accepted acronym that most people that are of our genre are going to know what he means. But we're not most people. And so I, I always try to say net promoter score. So I just, when you get into, there's, I know, an engineer in the front row. When you get into your subspecialty, help the rest of us understand your brilliance. By, um, I, I really believe we should try to avoid acronyms. I'm sorry. No, 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 we should. And <laughs> those of you that are in my other class know that I, I love my international students because they're the only ones that will admit they don't know these, some of these acronyms that I forget and, and use. So what is NPS again? Ah, sorry. No, you're right. So you do have all these roles that you're playing um, quite actively. I'm curious which one, I don't know if if the right way to ask this is you're most proud of or you think makes the biggest impact. Because I know obviously you're passionate about all of them. Yes. So... um so I do serve in a variety of capacities, but I'm going to sort of lump a bunch of the roles that I play into one title and call it coach. So um, I do remember fondly the time of sort of being a, a tennis coach, and I was also a strength and conditioning coach and a personal trainer. And observing, um, and, and let me say, what I learned about myself because I was really, I am, really competitive, really driven, and very self-absorbed. Self-aware, we've said, so at least I'm aware that I'm self-absorbed. But what I discovered about myself is actually winning is good, yeah, but helping someone else be successful is my greatest joy. Mm. So coaching, I literally just got shivers. So coaching for me is the, is the thing. And, and having somebody come to you, just to give you a simple but, but really real example, a, a, a woman come to me and say, and she's at the time, John, it seemed a little, she seemed older to me at the time. She was 60. 40. I'm, I'm, I'm 51 now, so 60 is really quite young. Um, and she said, I've never stepped foot in a gym, and I could never do a real, a real push-up. And I said, give me six weeks, you'll do 20. Mm. And so, of course she did it, right? Because why would I tell you this story if she didn't? But that's not it. It's that she did that. And you know what else changed? She went and went back to school. Mm. She went and she finished her degree. And I have so many other powerful examples of helping people tap in to, I don't even know what we call that, John. So serving as a coach is my passion. And I have been able to... Parlay, I guess, that into, and it wasn't by design. You guys, this happened, I guess, just sort of organically, I was going to say by accident. But I ended up coaching people around me in the professional setting, and ultimately, I now serve as, I don't know if you would call it, executive coach to CEOs who run large and and small companies. And um, so I would say that whole world of, of coaching if I have one, is hopefully my greatest uh, contribution. It's your superpower, and it doesn't surprise me because you're, you are self-aware, as I've mentioned, but you're also an incredibly good listener, as most competent salespeople are. 
Um, so when you're self-aware and you're a good listener, then you, you could put yourself, if you're so inclined, into that, that role of coaching effectively. So if you don't mind passing the microphone back down to the front, I'm, but while the microphone's being passed, I have another question for you. Yes. So we have all of these future CEOs in the audience. Um, this is what you do, right? You talk to future CEOs. What would you, what would you tell these, if you were able to sit down individually one, one-on-one with each, each of these students, what would you suggest that they do to lay the groundwork for their future success, like right now? Yeah, cool. So I, I'm going to go deep on this a little bit, so just kind of settle in for a second, because I, I hope, you always hope when you have the privilege of being in a room like this that one person remembers one, one thing mm-hmm. that helps them, and I'm hoping that this is the moment. So to lay the groundwork for success, I, I believe that understanding and, and uh, projecting our personal brand is important. I believe finding your version of executive, your version of executive presence is critically important. And wrapping the, the second one into the third is effective or compelling communication. And yes, my background is in, in uh, sales, and so I've put a lot of time into um, how do you get a yes, mm-hmm. right, thinking about that. Yep. So I would like to just for a moment pause on the definition that I use, the operating de- definition for personal brand, because I think it's important for us to at least be intentional about it and know what it is. So just for the fun of it, does anybody want to take a stab at how would you define personal brand? No pressure if you do or don't. Anyone? Yes, sir. How you present yourself to the outside world. Perfect. How do you present yourself to the outside world? Does anybody else see it? So I agree. And yes. Um, sell yourself as a product. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. Sell yourself as a product. I like it. So I agree very much. Yeah. I really like that. Um, so the thing I would layer on, sort of the third thing. In, and I'm, I didn't make this up. It was um, Jeff Bezos, who you probably know is the founder of Amazon. He's somewhat famous for saying your personal brand or your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. Mm. So we can say what, our, what we want to be known for, but it's really what others say about you. So I want to pause for just a moment and invite each one of you to do an exercise at some point, maybe when you're procrastinating for finals. And, I, and this is to help you begin to understand how are you perceived by others. And I call this exercise essence. It's pretty simple. Think about 10 people who know you well. I want these to be 10 people who wish you well, not harm. These are nice people who are kind. And I want you to ask them, what three words would you use to describe me? Please don't think about it too long. Just give me those three words. You will collect those words. And what comes back to you is your essence, which, again, is the groundwork. So at least you have this sort of playing field to start from about what are you known for. And then you can go on that exercise. You got me thinking about it, so. I was tempted to try to capture yours, but that's, no. um, um, but I'm that's not, right, no, we would want to um, ask 10 people. So, um, so personal brand, and there's a lot more that we could say about that. The next one is executive presence, or let's just jump right into communication. And it won't surprise anybody to, to hear that I'm really feel strongly about this. Uh, communication is, uh, the path to everything and you know the people that I work with and for communicate for a living so let's think about and I'm curious who what what percentage of communication do you believe is nonverbal meaning the words that you say versus something else what percentage is the words that you say yes ma'am 
Yeah, she said um, 20 sorry, 75% is nonverbal, 25% is, is verbal. So that, that's, I mean, there's, there are different studies on this, but that's about right. The highest, I guess the, the, the highest number I've heard for nonverbal is 93%, is 7% being actually the words that we say. But let's see, I like the 75, let's break it into the two categories, because it won't surprise you that, um, what, what do you think um, the number one driver for communication is? What, what is it if it's not your words? Body language. Body language, 100%. What do you think the other one was? And you guys, I actually didn't. I might just say I learned this recently. What do you think the other one is? Tone. Yes, tone. You nailed it. Who said yeah. that? Yeah. So it's uh, intonation, I think. But yes, tone. So I want to just give a couple of quick examples of, um, of body language and tone, just in case anybody doesn't believe me. <laughs> Or believe it, which you don't, I don't know that this is universally accepted, but it's, I think most would say it's significant. So I want to show you what somebody could look like when they walk into the boardroom for the first time. She's never been there before, and she goes and she sits down at the table and she pulls up her chair and she goes like this. Mm. Okay? What do we think about her? She doesn't look very comfortable. She's actually has a sort of down sort of reflection. Uh, she doesn't seem open. Um, and I would say that person, to me, doesn't seem very confident. What about me, by the way? Absolutely terrified, wondering, what am I doing here in this room? What did I look like when I, when I sat down in the boardroom for the very first time? By the way, I, I'm not going to do it, but I pushed my chair back. Okay, I pushed it back from the table. Why? Because I wanted to be able to read the room. I wanted to be able to see every single person's face. So there's a picture of me plus 11 people or so around the boardroom table. Um, and then what did I do? Par- like completely freaked out. Did, did I want to do this? Yeah, absolutely, but I did this instead. Right? Do I do, do I look do I look scared? No. And so I have to tell you, total, I I did have a moment. Fake it till you make it. Fortunately, like now this feels very natural to me. This is also a moment to talk about. Sorry, I still no, no, no. Um, this is actually a moment to talk about authentic versions of executive presence. Like I have a pretty big. I'm not very tall, but I have a pretty big personality. Don't do don't do what I'm doing. You do what works for you. But your version of being open, confident, I think is critically important. I want to just touch on the intonation before we um, move on and give examples. Probably the best known, and there's a lot of controversy about this. You might want to also Google at some point. I think you'll hear most often upswing or up speak is what you'll hear people talk about. So what do I mean by that? An example would be Simple sentence. Is today Tuesday? Today's yes. Tuesday. Okay. Today is Tuesday? Or today is Tuesday. So did you believe me that it was Tuesday the first time? Not really. Like, ah, why? Is it a question? I mean, you even hear people introduce themselves. Oh, sorry. Introduce themselves. My name is Catherine. Like, is it or isn't it? Right. right? You know? Um, so that's a really common one. And one of the reasons it's controversial is it's often... Um, You'll hear more women. It's more common that you'll see that you'll hear women doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, on the um, you'll have some. I see this a little bit more common with um, men, but it also relates to intonation or how you express yourself. And um, I hear this. Uh, yeah, like so. Yeah, so today's Tuesday. 
<laughs> or today's Tuesday. We have so many filler words. And by the way, I don't mean to be rude. You know, I understood what that person said. It doesn't mean you need to change this. But just to wrap this theme together is I just want people to be aware that you're doing it. And keep doing it. It's fine. If it's natural to you to have an up tone in your voice, so be it. You can still be a CEO of a company. It's, not gonna, it's fine. But I just really want people to be aware and have the opportunity to get feedback so you can film yourself, ask people. Yes. You know, if you're going into an interview for the first time, maybe you could practice again, but do it with people that you like and who have your back. I'd say be aware and also be aware of the, of the implications that may or may not be happening because not everyone's going to react the same way to the same body language. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm a huge fan of young people understanding basic body language science. I am not an expert in it. I do share a few things in my class, really more books that you can read more about. There's some really good books that are out there. Um, but just being aware of it, and men and women. There's, I've seen men in, in board room situations that... It's comical, some of the body language they put out there. And it's all dominant. You know, they're, like, making themselves as big as they can be and all this other kind of... Man spreading. Yeah. It's, okay. And I just, like, really do... I mean, but I don't think they're aware of it. It's like being aware, being aware of it is a good first step, both for, for men and for women. Um, let's go ahead and, and take another student's question. Um, hello. Hello. So my question was, as a mentor, what do you find is the most important single piece of information you could give to a student who is going into a job they don't feel super confident and they don't feel like they have enough experience to be doing? So I love the vulnerability of this question. So I know that this hypothetical person is going to be fine. We're all you're, So I just know that that's true. Um, however, you know, I guess I would say going into one's first job, I don't think people really expect you to have experience. They hired you because you're smart, because you had a great attitude, because it seemed, feels like you're going to be a great team player. And, you know, you got hustle, you're smart. You know, so I, so I don't mean to, I love the question so much, and I don't mean to discount the significance of it. So while you're um, faking it till you make it, um, I, what I love to do, and I do it now, is you're new in the company, Go ask some people, could I have 15 minutes or 30 minutes of your time just to talk about your role because I'm not familiar with what you do and, and, you know, how it relates to the rest of the company, whether it's or whatever the environment is that you're in. And so I think, well, if you figure out what everybody else does and how it... um, sort of feeds into the overall goals of the company, by the time you're done, you you will have probably figured out what your job is, too. Thank you. Great. We'll we'll take the next student's question. Hi, Catherine. Um, I was reading through your LinkedIn page and noticed you spent a lot of time connecting high-profile executives, um, alumni, and other friends of the firm. Um, Excuse me. Uh, to jobs, to publicly company board seats with an emphasis on diversity. And I guess my question to you is, what is one commonality you find between these high-profile executives that maybe leads them to their success or differentiates themselves from others? Yeah, so again, um, thank you for reading the LinkedIn profile. Thank you for the question. It is one of the favorite parts about my job, um, which is helping, oh, by the way, 
hello, big networking um, benefit is if you help someone find a job, that person will always take your call. So in, in my case, that would I, I do have the privilege of doing that from time to time and also really passionate about helping change the demographic yep. around the boardroom table and increasing diversity on public and private company boards. So to answer the question, I'm going to say three things. Um, and the first one that came to mind um, when I was listening to you is integrity. Every single person. I mean, that's just table table stakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, period. And uh, part of that goes to, and I guess number two is your reputation. When you go and make an introduction, right? So I want to introduce you. So you didn't already know John. You're interested in working with John. Um, my reputation, honestly, today, and I really mean this, is all I have. So I want to make sure that you have integrity, that that at least is a good conversation. It's going to be productive. You're in the ballpark. But I want to know that you're a decent person and that um, you're not only good at what you do, but that I know that there's going to be a reasonable um, culture fit for sure. But then I'm just going to take a third thing and say, you know, because the people I'm engaged with in these um, settings are pretty far along in their careers. Um, they've done a lot of really impressive things. And you know they don't come across as arrogant in any way. Yes, confident, but they have low ego, high humility, and high level of curiosity are things that I observe. Mm-hmm. Do you, what do you? Yeah, 100%. Yeah? Yep. You're not just saying that? No, I'm not just saying that. <laughs> no, but I think, but something, I want to touch upon something else you said about the intros. So when you do, when you're a younger person asking someone else for an intro, it is a reflection on our brand. I mean, the reality is, um, and so we need to do a good job of curating those intros so that the future, like if I do a bad job of introing you, then when she comes down for an intro later, I, I, I denuded her chances of getting something from my intro because I didn't do my job with you. So we really want to make sure that we're not wasting the other person's time. And so that the next time I, I say, hey, do you mind talking to this person? They're like, of course, the last person you talked, I hired them. You know? So you, you, I know you do this every day, all day long. But it's a skill. It's not easy to do because, you, of course, your natural inclination is to say, of course, I'll introduce you to anybody, anytime, anywhere. It is. That's, that doesn't help anybody, though, True. If, if done inappropriately. True. Let's take the next student's question. Hi, Catherine. Hi. As not only an industry leader, but someone who is very involved in her community, where do you draw the line between investing time in ventures that matter to you and spreading yourself too thin? So, um, again, I'm, I kind of want to lie and make up an answer, and instead I'm going to tell you the truth. Um, this area that you've just asked about, which is some version of sort of life balance, when do you say yes to things, when do you say no to things, and the truth is, you know, I, I get paid to do a job. I'm the primary breadwinner bread in the family. I always have been. My job is not a hobby. So, you know, that, that's real. You have to perform and perform, and I believe need to get an A at, at the people who, for the people who pay me. So I, this question is really important. And I have to tell you, it is probably the biggest two decision point, I was going to say struggle, opportunity I have um, that I'm working on, honestly. I, uh, and my, I guess the, the, because I've said yes to a lot of things. And, and I guess now, at this stage of life, which, by the way, I'm really glad that I did. I don't regret any of these opportunities. Um, and I guess now the one thing that I'm doing 
is um, when a new something comes and it's often in the form of um, advisories, a board service to a company, often an early stage tech company or a nonprofit, and I have a really hard time saying not no to a charitable organization, I pause and I go to my personal board of directors and mentors mm-hmm. and so they'll you know, put, try to maybe help ask a series of questions as to whether or not I should say yes. So I'm, I'm working on it. Yeah, we'll take one more. All right, uh, Catherine, due to your tremendous experience with technology clients, what do you think is the most important legal aspect for young tech startups to take into account that plays a big role later on? So thank you for this question because it allows me to talk a little bit about um, our law firm. And by the way, we did not collude. Like this really happened. This question really happened. Um, (laughs) So um, first, I just want to say for all um, entrepreneurs and future entrepreneurs in the room, you will need a lawyer. And law firms like uh, Baker Botts that focus in the technology space uh, will, and they have to be very selective, but I just want to mention this to everybody, that your law firm, your lawyer, if you've got a great idea and you can convince them that it has legs, they should effectively represent you for free up to a point. So that means incorporation, maybe locking down your IP and doing some other critical pieces of work. Mm -hmm. Here's the deal. You get funded, we get paid. You don't get funded, we don't get paid. So I believe it's the right thing to do. We, of course, can't run our entire business that way. It needs to be. Um, and But you, there, are an, there are other technology-focused law firms that um, do this, and, and we're among that group. So now, I'm so curious about what you think, but I'll just say the things that I see coming up most often. And sorry if this sounds like a buzzkill, but... Um, the most significant one is formation of your company and the founder, he or she ends up giving away equity and control and having advice and somebody who has your back and their sole job is to protect and support you I think is critically important. The next area that comes up very regularly um, of late I would say somewhere around intellectual property and or licensing and that would be just you want to be able to facilitate the sales process. Um, that's an oversimplification. So I would say something in the intellectual property arena. It depends on your business how important that's going to be. And then the last one, again, in a world that we operate in that is becoming more and more regulated, which, oh, by the way, accounts for why law is a trillion-dollar industry and it's growing by leaps and bounds is because of that increased regulation, you need more people working on those issues at companies yep. and at law firms. And so I lumped together this third area that any CEO needs to be mindful of, and there's sort of three things together. It would be data, privacy, and security. So a simple example would be like things are going swimmingly and then you have a breach in all of your customers. Bleh. Not the end of the world, but you know. Anyway, things of that nature that you need to guard against, and there are a lot of other examples of that. What would you say? Uh, the number one that I would put—you you sort of touched upon it—is um, a lot of founder teams break up. Mm. It's just like mm-hmm. another relationship in your life, and it, it's—it's just—it happens, right? So if you don't have a lawyer that sits down with you when, when you're in that love phase, yeah. of like I love this other founder and she loves me, but you want an objective person to say that's great, but let's talk about what happens if you fall out of love. 
and oftentimes they don't vest. So one person, I saw this tragically with a local company where it was a woman and the other guy had like 50% of the company and he was like, I'm out of here. And there was very little she could do legally because the way the documents were drafted mm. was he owned half the company. Yeah. So vesting, making sure that you're really thinking through what what a good lawyer will do is they don't say no. You know, you ask him, can I do the following? They say, here's how you need to do it. Here's how you should do it. Mm-hmm. Not no. Mm-hmm. And so you might say, you know, I want to protect myself against a breakup with my founder. Okay, well, here's three ways we can do it. Mm-hmm. So I think having that objective shoulder to, because we're always in a daze of, of, of optimism, right? We're always yes. like, it's all going to work. And it's like, well, they might, but if it doesn't. Such a good point. Yep. So let's go with the last uh, student's question. Yeah. So I read the news article um, on BakerBot's website, and it mentions your network of influential legal and business professionals. And so I was wondering, how did you establish yourself to be in that position of building bridges and connecting people? And do you have any advice for us? Oh, gosh. Um, Again, thank you for reading that and um, asking the question. So I think what I do now and what I did 25 years ago is exactly the same in regards to this um, important um, thing that you've shined a light on and that is you go into let's imagine you go into a networking setting let's say you're going to a meetup mm-hmm. that has entrepreneurs it has CEOs, it has some funders it has some bankers, it has some scientists, I don't know, it has some folks and I go talk to person number one and they've created some company with some cool technology. Oh, oh, by the way, you have to ask questions. That's probably the most important thing. You just ask somebody like, hey, so what are you working on these days? It's really exciting to you. And like 45 minutes later, they'll still be talking to you, which is <laughs> awesome. And you hear all that, right? And then you excuse yourself and you go get a cup of coffee and then you go talk to another person. And they go, yeah, so I have this really big company. I'm looking to do tuck-in. I'm looking to acquire other companies. I'm obviously making this seem like really happy ending perfect. But I go, oh, really? Well, that's so interesting because she just has a company. She has that kind of technology and say, you know, would you be interested in meeting her? And, and they say, well, of course. So my point being, do I know anything about the technology? Do I know anything about this? I know I do not. But I heard that they both needed each other. And so my point of all of this is when you listen carefully and figure out what's important and then how to be valuable to people. Mm-hmm. By the way, you can do that if you're whatever age you are. And that's not a function of your title or your education that you have or anything. That's just useful. Yep. It's being a connector and giving before you get. Like just giving freely, and of course it'll follow. Like yeah. Other people will repay yeah. you in other ways. Yeah. So she makes it sound easy. That's what she just said is hard to do. But if you're an active listener and you, and you really get the psychic rewards from helping people, then it will flow. So we're running out of time. I have uh, two more questions. I mean, I have a lot more that I'd like to ask you, but we're only going to ask two more. So I know you're involved with um, your advisor to Shatter Fund, which yeah. is focused not exclusively, but primarily on female founders and female um, entrepreneurs. You're working with Brooke Shields on a project. What, what advice do you have for men and women, but, but maybe particularly women that are seeking venture capital? You're, you're an incredible salesperson. Like, what have you seen work in, in the real world? So um, surrounding yourself with people that you trust, right? Great advisors and um, asking for help. Um, 
and you know well there's a lot of, there are a lot of different places ways we could take this question um, but I think when I think about the pitches to um, VCs that I think have been most successful is you take your pitch and somebody gives it to me more often than not I say they get to the end to like the essence of it so you get to the end and they go and by doing so I'm going to um, save the environment and I'm like why did they make me wait 22 right, minutes right, to get right. to save the environment so we move the end to the beginning and you walk in and you say I'm going to save the environment and I want to tell you how and then you can give your proof points, but um, huge oversimplification. Mm -hmm. John, one thing that I'm seeing a lot now, because it's hard to get people's attention, yep. um, is I see more and more people doing short videos. Mm. So like two minutes to talk about your idea. You can get so much into a video, two minutes. By the way, you can do it on your phone. You don't need like all these fancy cameras. So yeah, I have so much I want to say about this, but I know we're short on time. Well, maybe if you want to expound on one other thing, how do you get that uh, venture capitalist attention? Like, that's, that's often difficult. So you, the video will help you once you have their attention. How do you get it? Oh, I kind of want to answer a different question that is, I hope, related and most relevant to what this crew could do tomorrow. Yeah, go for it. And that, and because there are venture capitalists in this play that I'm about to lay out for everybody. Participating in hackathons. How many of you have participated in a hackathon before? Raise your hand. Um, so our place where you get together with a, a it'll have different parameters and I'm sure you've seen and they can take on many different forms but the point is I know students same stage of life went to a hackathon got together with other people and they happen to be UC Berkeley students but I'm sure we're all friends, gauchos, bears, good. Um, and literally the people that I'm thinking of, they founded a company that day and within six weeks that company was funded and they are thriving. They actually ended up moving it to another country but anyway, that's fine. And so I just, I just think that putting yourself in the right environments mm -hmm. to practice, and in this case, you are in fact getting, you're, you're guaranteed to get exposure to decision makers. Now, are you going to make it through the funnel? Um, you know, there were 320 companies, and four of them got found. Four, four of them got founded. So that's my yeah. inspiration. And, and I ended up investing in a company that founded that way as well. They were like somewhere in the Midwest. They went to a, I think it was a startup weekend. They met. They didn't know each other before. They got so excited about their idea. The way Startup Weekend works is on Sunday you're supposed to present. And they were like, forget it. We don't even, we're, we're going to do this for real. So they ended up starting a company, moving to L.A., ended up selling to Google. So it was a very successful ending to two people that just randomly went to a Startup Weekend and, and, and met each other. Yeah. So, it's fun. So get out there. Get out there and meet people. <laughs> so last question. She mentioned essence. This is kind of an essence question to, to some extent. So you're young. You've got a lot of work ahead of you. But decades from now. Like your grandchildren are watching this video, and they're like, Grandma, what do, you, what do you want your former colleagues to say about your legacy? And in your case, you have three sets of colleagues, so yeah. it could be any of the three sets. What would yeah. you want them to say about your legacy? Um, other than she had great shoes. <laughs> um, so all kidding aside, you know, I really would hope that people would say, you know, Catherine really did look 
to um, be of service to others. And she meant it when she said, uh, my greatest joy is helping other people be successful. However, that's nice if people say that. I deeply appreciate it, and I hope they experience me that way. But what's way better, so let's say I do place somebody on a board or help them get a job, and they'll say, what can I do for you? You know, what, like, And they want to send me like nice flowers. And that, that's, but what I would really prefer is that they just turn around and do that, mm. this for someone mm. else. So if I were to have a legacy or what I would hope to be recognized for, it would actually be the amplification that can occur that if we all look for ways to be of service with, to each other without, you mentioned it earlier, looking, doing it in a, in a no transactional yep. way. You just, you know, be of service and the universe will provide. Again, I'm from Berkeley, so you have to permit me. <laughs> but, you know, I think I, as much, and since we said essence, though, I can't, as, and as much as you can tell, like, I care about my job and how I'm coming across to you and I want, I'm ambitious and all of those things. Really, when I think about legacy, I think about my son. He's 14. Mm. And I think about, you know, this is, this, he could also be a CEO of a company someday. And um, as we were talking about, he could also be a professional baseball player. Those are within his reach. And what I hope is that my son, Ryan, would say, you know, my mom believed in me, had my back, and um, always showed up for me. So I really, I think truly my legacy, I would hope that those closest to me would, um, would, would say that I, uh, I showed up for them. I would say all of those colleagues that we talked about, would, and we didn't get a chance to talk about your philanthropic efforts, but I think all of those colleagues would say those things about you. Thank you. Thank you for coming, Catherine. We really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.